Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for meta-modern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, emptiness, inconceivability, William Gibson's agency, awakening, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with John Prendergast. John J. Prendergast, PhD, is the author of the books The Deep Heart and In Touch. He's a spiritual teacher, psychotherapist, and retired adjunct professor of psychology who offers retreats in the United States and Europe. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call The Non-Dual Heart with John Prendergast. John, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to have you here. This is one of the interviews I've been looking forward to doing for a long time. And part of the joy is, of course, speaking with you. And also, it's in person, right? You're here in the studio in downtown San Francisco. And I don't get to do this that often. Tons of interviews are over the internet using various technological means. And so I always really deeply enjoy it and appreciate it when I can sit face-to-face with a guest and we can just have a conversation. Well, it's more intimate, isn't it? And we feel it already, (laughs) don't we? It's just easier to tune into where people are at. And and plus, you know, I don't know, it's just nice. So welcome to the studio. Yeah, thank you so much. So it seems like what's happening kind of as a serendipitous, spontaneous unfolding here is that I'm interviewing a bunch of teachers who are deeply steeped in non-dual tradition and often Kashmiri tantrism and related traditions. So that seems to be happening lately for whatever reason. It's the subtle network of the Kashmiri tantrics has been tweaked or twanged (laughs) or whatever, and everyone's showing up. So this is great. It's very fun for me. So let's just, for listeners who aren't aware of you or your work, can you just give me the background of how you got from, you know, there to here, so to speak? How'd you get involved in meditation and what's the short version? I'll give it as concisely as possible. It all feels like just following something, you know, and as I reflect on it, it really began in kind of late boyhood and early Mm -hmm. adolescence. And I can remember falling asleep or starting to relax And I would find myself opening to this sense of infinite spaciousness Mm -hmm. that was either expansive or contractive, like infinitely small and infinitely big. And I would just feel a tension moving spontaneously between these domains. And it was delightful and mysterious. And I never spoke to anyone about it. And it went on for several years, pretty regularly. And then puberty hit. And all of that was forgotten. Yes. Other things become more interesting. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Girls became very interesting and cars and and the latest TV show. And it was all forgotten until I listened to a recording of Ravi Shankar when I was 17. So a musical recording. Yeah. It was just a record, you know, of sitar from the Mm -hmm. Monterey Pop Festival. Oh, that beautiful concert just after Jimi Hendrix. Yes, that one. (laughs) And I listened to it, and it was like, oh, my God. I mean, just something was so deeply stirred. So that was the end of high school. Off I went to UC Santa Cruz, which was very kind of cutting edge at the mm-hmm. time, 68. And a um, fellow student introduced me to Yogananda, Ramakrishna. I began reading about saints and sages of India, and there was just something so familiar about it. 
And I began Transcendental Meditation when I was 20. That was Baba Haridas yeah, there already? Yeah, absolutely. I met him. He kind of zoomed through the campus in 1970 with his little chalkboard. Yes. And I remember sitting with him. It's like, this is an interesting character. And, you know, Ram Das would come through in Muktananda and Satchitananda. So all of that was kind of alive in the late 60s and early 70s. And so I began a meditation practice. And the second time I sat with mantra, I fell into that spacious awareness again mm. that I had as a boy. Wow. And it's like, oh, this is it, right? So I experimented a little bit with psychedelics right around that period. I uh, had very profound openings, actually, glimpses of non-dual awareness. But I knew that psychedelics were not my path. And was this, you know, like a mild dose or were you really it was a huge dose yeah. uh this is like grateful dead winter land <laughs> owsley acid someone's got to drive me home and yes. a lot of people wound up in the hospital but i wound up with my first glimpse of non-dual awareness yeah. during which i knew this is not my path right. it's like i kind of crashed in the back door of the sanctuary you know and it's like this is amazing there's no one here you know but pure awareness and everything is that I know this, and I know it's going to be many, many years, decades in practice before this actually comes in a more natural way. It was very yeah. interesting. So just that kind of intuitive knowing. It was, was direct right intuitive knowing this is not my path, but I am grateful for this glimpse. And then I began TM and was a steady practitioner, became a TM teacher. You know, anecdotally, I've met several TM practitioners who had just a walloping experience of like Nirvikalpa Samadhi doing TM at one point or another. Are you one of those individuals? No, I am no? not. Mm. <laughs> I'm like the slow, gradual mind settling down, things getting quieter. Yeah. So I would, you know, do long meditation courses and sit for many hours on these and there was a point in my mid-20s, and I had become a TM teacher after I had a stint in the Army. Wow. I, I was, what uh, was your MOS? What did I do? Because I had a you know a high school tech background and was a college grad, they had me training to do radar technician missile mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had applied to be a CO, and it was turned down. And I didn't want to work on a weapons system. And so basically, really for the first time, this story I didn't expect I'd be telling... So I was sent off to Georgia for uh, advanced training, and I prayed to God for the first time in my life and said, I cannot do this. And the next morning, they sent everyone off, and they said, Prendergast, you wait here. Your MOS, your military occupation specialty, has been changed. Wow. And you are now a clerk. Wow. And I said, wow, how does this work? Right. And so I was sent to Germany as an ammunitions clerk, and I wrote... <laughs> like counting crates of bullets. Or like. Something like that. Uh, <laughs> this is such a bizarre story. But I knew that there were several generals, uh, one who was the head of the Army War College, who was meditating. Mm. And they were interested in stopping drug and alcohol use. And this is one of the byproducts of a regular meditation practice. So I wrote him a letter. And I said, I'm networked with the TM folks, and I could get this introduced in Germany, and can you help me? And he said, I can't, but I'll say I believe in this program. Use this letter. And I finally met with all the top brass in Army in Europe, and they said, what do you want to do? Wow. Like I gave a presentation to colonels and generals. What year are we talking? 73. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So I, that's what I worked in, drug alcohol prevention. I brought... TM into the Army. I was given an Army Commendation Medal when I left, 
And then I became a TM teacher. Wow. Weird. That is Just an amazing so story. Weird. You know, I don't talk about it very often. So anyway, I trained as a TM teacher, came back to California. I was the head of the San Jose TM Center in like the big wave in the mid 70s. Mm. And came back to San Jose in the mid 70s and was the head of a TM Center. And I was going to a, a retreat and this desire to have a teacher suddenly arose for the very first time in my life. Now, TM is a guru-based tradition from Maharishi Mahashi. It is, but the emphasis is on technique okay. and not relationship with the teacher. True. And I wasn't into having a teacher. I was kind of opposed to having a teacher. But I remember the moment I was driving with several other TMers in a car to a retreat, and out of nowhere, it's like, I want to know my teacher. Mm. So I signed up for a long six-month cities course, went to... That's S-I-D-D-H-I-S, right. As in subtle powers, not because I was interested in them, but actually wanting to know if Maharishi was my teacher. Yes. And I went to Switzerland, six-month course, and I again prayed. It's like, show me my teacher. And who shows up? Let me just ask you, yeah. who are you praying to? I couldn't tell you. you just in your mind, it's, it's like, God. Yeah, it's like... You know, is anyone there? Yeah, okay. <laughs> that kind of... Yeah. It wasn't a particular... No, no deal. form. It, yeah. it was just like, I need help, mm. you know, or I want help. And who shows up in a profound vision but Satya Sai Baba? Wow. And I had known of him and read a book about him, but I wasn't that interested in him. And I was kind of put off by the cities and miracles and so on. But here he shows up right in the center of, you know, my little room in Switzerland kind of in the core just feeling of my heart. And it's like, I can't ignore this. Right. This is a clear response. So, And it was clear that Maharishi wasn't my teacher. So I left the TM movement, and off I went to India two years later. To Satya Sai Baba's place? Yep, wow. to Puta Party mm -hmm. in the south. And this was my devotional phase. Yes, <laughs> we all have one. <laughs> I have this temperament that's like this interesting mixture of love of wisdom and love of call it God or truth or reality, but it has a devotional temperament to it. So this was really five years more devotional practice and oriented towards service and doing arati and bhajans and sure. kirtan. And this Welcome to the club, yeah. Yeah, you share this. And yes. then I make it, this is a long story. I'm trying to make it short here. Uh, please, <laughs> this is interesting. All right. So I was living here in San Francisco in the Sai Baba Center, and I had a dream. And in the dream, I was in Mumbai, Bombay, and there was this kind of little tenement place and a window. And I looked in, and there was this sage who I didn't know with these luminous eyes. And I became lucid in the dream. Mm. So I was aware that I was dreaming, but it continued. And he came up to me, and he said, will you be my translator? It was done telepathically, you know. I said, I can't speak your language. <laughs> and yet we're communicating. And then he nodded and he came out and he took my elbow and he said, I know you're a devotee of Satya Sai Baba, but you can spend some time with me. Wow. Like, who's this? Yeah, who yeah. is this? And I woke up just like vibrant with this meeting and I checked in with my housemate. And I said, who is that sage that you saw in Bombay? He said, oh, Nisargadatta Maharaj. I said, do you have a photo of him? He said, yeah, and he whips it out. And I said, I just had this lucid dream with him last night. Quote, lucid dream. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was as real as our conversation is now. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, meeting oneself. Yes. You know, and so I began reading I Am That. And that was a pivotal 
shift in my understanding. And I realized, I read, the seeker is the sought. Mm. This is what I've been looking for is, and it's just like everything shifted. It's so amazing how many people have that particular book as their this has been pivotal for me pivotal moment yeah Yeah, it really it just something lit up in that recognition he died a month later oh so you did not get to i never met him this was august of 81 Mm. and he you know he died a month later but it was a profound encounter and shift and began really intense self-inquiry i realized i'm projecting myself on this teacher and it was like, oh my God, I kind of knew it intellectually, but I got it on some level Yeah, that just was, you know, like a 180, <laughs> let's find out who's looking, Yeah, you know? So I Am That became my Bible for two years. And then I met Jean Klein in Sausalito and he's not well known in the U.S., but he's a Advaita teacher, European. He's a, uh, a French man, correct? He was Czechoslovakian. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, I think his mom was Jewish and... He was educated in Vienna mm. as a musicologist, got a degree in musicology. Then he went to the University of Berlin and got an MD, 1936, wow. half Jewish, Yeah, time to get out. Time to leave. And he went to France. And mm. so he was Jan, he became Jean, and uh, his story is an interesting one. He fought in the French Foreign Legion. He was in the underground resistance during World War II, helping Jews go from France across the border into Switzerland. Mm. And then he went off to India in the late 40s and met his teacher, had a profound awakening, and came back to Europe in early 60s and came to California early 80s. And I met him in 83. And the first time I met him, I walked into the room. I didn't see him. He was out of sight. The presence in the room was so palpable, I couldn't think. Mm. That caught my attention. Yes. Because I'd been such a thinker. And I sat with him. I could hardly understand anything he said was this thick European-accented English. But I knew I'd met my teacher. Mm. And so that was 83, and studied with Jean. Spent a little time with Amici during that time, kind of divine mother time. Sure. That was important. Jean passed away in 98. And uh, he was teaching Kashmiri Shaivism? Or? It was an interesting blend of Advaita and Kashmiri Shaivism. Mm. And he was a lover of life. Yeah. He was a lover of beauty. Mm. He loved music. He was like a European gentleman. Yeah. You know? And he had been exposed to Kashmiri teachings, and they were implicit, particularly with his body work and his working with the subtle body. So that was my introduction to Kashmiri Shaivism. Mm. And then I met Adya in 99 and did a retreat in 2001. And this really catalyzed a series of openings. So he's my second main teacher. And you're using the short version of his name. Adya Shanti. Adya Shanti, yeah. yeah. Here in uh, Los Gatos. Yeah, in the city of the, the cats. <laughs> so I did intense retreat with Adya from 2001 to 2006. And then it felt like, you know, I've learned what I need here. And, and I began teaching self-inquiry groups at that point. This is where my teaching began. Yeah. Small groups, like groups of eight or nine people. I did two groups for 11 years. Did some co-teaching with my friend and colleague, Dorothy Hunt, mm. who also studied with Adya Shanti. And then began teaching on my own about four years ago. And contemporaneous with this, you have a career as a therapist, correct? I do. Right. I didn't even mention that, did I? (laughs) You know, in my late 20s, I'd been in law school, and Mm. it's like, that wasn't it. And I wanted to know myself better on a psychological level, because I was anxious as a human being. I was very peaceful on meditation retreat, but give me a social interaction. (laughs) It's like, this is challenging. So I wanted to know what that was about. You know, I knew I had to face my conditioning. And so 
I trained as a therapist and also taught for many years at CIS here in San Francisco. I was wanting to know the psychological domain and what's the relationship between spirit and psychological conditioning and what's the difference and and are they different and they're not different yeah <laughs> ultimately yeah yeah we've talked quite a bit about that on the deconstructing yourself podcast with various teachers and about how they are different covering different domains and yeah. then where they do overlap and mm, yeah I'm sure yeah it's quite an interesting topic but we're going to save that one for another conversation. All right, very good. I'm, I'm really interested in your take on non-dual practice. And also, as I understand it, you have a book out recently that really dives into the heart-based understanding or experience Mm -hmm. or practice of non-duality. And I find that really interesting because so many people, when they talk about non-dualism, Advaita, you know, Rigpa, emptiness, it's very mental and very philosophical. And that's good. It's important to be sharp, right? And clear Mm -hmm. and all that. Mm -hmm. And yet it's not as common to really hear someone talking about the deep heart-based aspects of that. Mm. And this is something that's just evolved over time, this kind of sensitivity and understanding. And I think one thing I should mention is, for unknown reasons, I have kind of unusual kinesthetic sensitivity when I sit with people, so I can track their process. And so what I was noticing when I would work with people in my one-on-one work for many years is I could kind of track both emotionally and energetically what was happening. And a lot happens in the heart area, you know, and psychologically in terms of our conditioning and our wounding. But what I would find both within myself and people that I would work with is not only do we have this deep level of conditioning that impacts, you know, our feeling and sensing in the heart area in terms of emotional reactions and contractions, but as that begins to attenuate as it releases, there's this very pure level of essential qualities of feeling and of being that begin to emerge and psychologically would sometimes be described as the magical child. Mm -hmm. In other words, a quality of innocence would emerge and people would feel increasingly at home. I think this was a gradual emergence in my own sensitivity. I could feel the back of the heart area opening up into infinite space. And I began to sense the heart area as a portal. Right. And the opening to infinite space, it's where subject and object dissolve, and there's a sense of inherent wholeness and non-separation. That was clearly something that began to emerge in my own understanding and experience as there was greater clarity that I am not my story. I am not my image. I'm not who I think I am. I am inconceivable. So that kind of clarity of mind also allows attention to drop down and in. And so instead of just waking up, there's a waking down and a waking in, a dropping of attention down and a falling back into what feels like infinite space that is not only clear, but loving. Mm. Now, would you relate this understanding of a kind of portal in the back of the heart to kind of the Mahamudra move that is often made of 
you know, stepping out back various portals in the spine or whatever, like, you know, you drop back into infinite space in that direction. It sounds like it it is, although I'm totally unfamiliar with the Mahamudra move. It's kind of their signature move. I know. I've seen Reggie Ray do it, (laughs) the dropping the back of the head or any other portal. Yeah. So the signature move was unfamiliar to me. Yes. It just happened of its own. That's so cool. Spontaneously. Yes. Right. And it's beautiful then to see it described and referred to Mm -hmm. in other traditions, and particularly in the Tibetan tradition. Good. So when you're working in that space, contacting through that space, what's that like for you? (laughs) Okay, so the experience right now is like this well of gratitude. Just ask the question, what's here? Like attention dives in and back, and there's a sense of... Oh my God, you know, just such gratitude. There's a feeling of limitless, spacious, luminous affection Mm. that just like pours through like gratitude for being, not for anything in particular, but just how amazing this is to be alive and awake and to be able to feel so deeply. There's a joy here as well. And I'm close to tears. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) So have you found that besides being important for you personally, has this been an important direction in your teaching? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And what's interesting is just how contagious it is. I mean, in the same way, when either one of us speaks to and touches this, it's felt, isn't it? Yeah, you bet. Yeah. It's resonant. Why is that? You know, it's shared. You know, it's known by all of us on some level, more or less consciously. And as it continues to open and deepen in terms of as an intimacy with what do we call it, this awake, loving awareness, it communicates itself by itself. The words are secondary, what I find. And this is the beauty of the teaching is it's a clear mind is important and having an ability to articulate and point to this with some facility. I think is useful. But if it's not a speaking from this, right, then there's a disconnect. It's abstract. And so the teaching, so-called teaching, is really a sharing of this. That really feels what the heart of it is about. And there's a movement not to create anything or make anything happen, but actually as an upwelling and outpouring, a very natural movement for this to be shared. And in general, when you're sharing this, are you having people contact natural awareness first and then Hmm. going there in the heart? Or is it typically more dropping into the heart and back and finding the natural awareness? You know, it's both. Mm -hmm. I do think it's important that the mind is clear and very often our attention is hijacked by our thinking, by our thoughts, our identification with thinking. I do it both ways. Like it's always here as a kind of shared heartfelt sense of being, but I may accent the importance of differentiating awareness from thought to recognize we're not what we think. We could never be what we think we are, who are what we think we are, and that there is no separate witness or observer. So those points, I think, are important to make because they help free attention from its ordinary fixation and identification Mm -hmm. with thought. Mm -hmm. And that allows it to more freely drop and sustain attention in the heart area. At the same time, I'll talk about the heart in this way, you know, that we are, and it just naturally evokes that and brings it into the foreground. 
So there's a complementary process between mental clarity and the evocation of, say, the experience of true nature through the heart area. And do you find that people really need and or respond to more systematic structures of practice to help with that clarity, such as, you know, the mantra or, or whatever? I think there's a definite role for it. Mm-hmm. What I do find is, you know, most people can't go there directly or sustain that unless there is some quietness in the system. And therefore, there's a role for a a more focused and concentrative practice initially, that is to say, in the heart. And usually what I do is I encourage my students, if their mind is a little jumpy, you know, and unsettled, and we begin just by bringing attention to the heart or the belly, the hara, and breathing here and using that as a gentle focus for attention. However, like once attention really settles and drops in a steadier way, to release that focus and simply abide in and as awareness. So it's a hybrid form, if you will. And do you find people are often experiencing this as, you know, beautiful, loving, open, and yet very, in a way, ordinary? Or is there a lot of non-ordinary state stuff? Ordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that I emphasize in my teaching, because it's not about evoking non-ordinary experience or chasing states. It's really about recognizing what's here always. And there can be, of course, an intensification of that when we're in a group and we're focusing on that. I mean, it's just like, "Mm," you know, it's strengthened. It can get big and intense. It can get intense, particularly if there's resistance to it. And this is an interesting point. It's like as we acclimate to this, and the body-mind has to acclimate. It's like a shift in vibrational level. It begins to feel more natural and ordinary. But when we first touch it, it can be like a pressure chamber opening mm-hmm. and a whole shift, you know, in terms of awareness that can be very intense. So ultimately, it's not intense, but initial contact can be. Yeah. So your new book is all about this, correct? Right. And what's it called? The Deep Heart. The Deep Heart. Yeah. Wonderful. So this is a synthesis, I would say, of this understanding. And um, so it's like the culmination of many, many, many years it of is. you working in this Yeah. Way. Yeah. yeah. Anything else you want to share about that? About the heart area? Yeah, about that teaching, about that mood before we move on. I think maybe what comes, just as you ask the question, is how important the love of truth is. Mm. And we may begin with a path of wisdom and path of clarity. It will move into the path of love. Yeah. We may start with a path of love. It moves into the path of clarity. In other words, there's an intermingling of love and wisdom. And this love, it's like there's a real devotion, but it's not a devotion to anything or anyone. It's a devotion to reality. Mm -hmm. And it feels like there's a calling spontaneously that we all have to align with, attune with, recognize, and live in accord with this heartfelt knowing. And I think this is actually the deepest fuel for this. It may start as a, I want this, or... I need this. But after a while, it's right. We feel pulled almost like a tractor beam, Mm -hmm. you know, into the true nature of the heart and it becomes less personal. And so maybe this is another point that it is both incredibly intimate and not personal. Yeah. It doesn't refer to or belong to anyone. And yet it is intimate with all things. And this is the fundamental non-dual recognition, the undivided nature of reality, that we have a phenomenal 
and relative experience, so certainly of a differentiated selves and even self and other, but when we really get to the core of who we are and what this is, we discover its undivided nature. And this is the ultimate, I think, realization that comes from awakening of the heart area. Yeah, undivided, unified, and yet, you know, multiple, right? Multiple. And as we recognize this, we celebrate diversity. Yeah. It's like this level of the heart does not need protection, mm. right? Other levels, more phenomenal and human levels, it's a very sensitive area, and we, we learn to protect it when we don't feel seen, when we don't feel understood, when we don't feel received as children, and we kind of block that part off. When we experientially and directly discover this undivided nature of the heart, it gives space for all that more sensitive human conditioned heart to actually be received with loving kindness, with understanding, and to unfold in a natural way. I guess another point I wanted to make about the heart is it's as if the great heart holds the human heart. Mm. And in that holding, without any attempt to manipulate or control or change, just allowing sort of this spacious loving presence to receive our conditioned emotional and energetic and cognitive complex that localizes in the heart, there's a very natural unfolding. And so the innocence of our exploration is really important. That is to say, not to get somewhere or get something, but actually to rest back in and as who we mm. are and to welcome anything that's wanting to be met from that awareness. And in this way, there's a growing integration between our essential nature and our conditioned nature as well. So the heart is remarkably powerful and important as a kind of central portal. There are different portals, but this one seems to kind of integrate relative and absolute in an extremely powerful and elegant way. And so even though the heart has this centrality as a portal, is that currently what you're most interested in working with? Here's the interesting thing. is like this book, The Deep Heart, feels like a kind of distillation and summation of what has emerged in my own understanding and my work with people. But in writing the book, it's like I could feel what the next step is, and I can feel it in my own unfolding exploration. And that's into the sense of the ground, like deeper down into the hara and like the base of the hara. As well. Okay, so when you say the ground, you mean moving from the heart to the belly? Yes, I do. And okay. hara means belly in yeah. Japanese. And, you know, for those who are sensitive energetically, there are three main energy centers known as the first three chakras. And the root chakra at the base of the spine really governs a sense of security and our phenomenological experience of the ground. The ground is such a fascinating subject. As I was finishing this book, I realized this wants to be written about and shared yes. about and more fully and understood and explored by myself because we rest on a constructed ground. This is deconstructing yourself, this program, right? <laughs> yes. And there's so many layers where we've constructed an apparent self and other. Sure, these fabrications and concepts. And, and yeah. they're conscious and they're subconscious and these deep fixations of attention and identification. Hmm. And one of them is down here at the base of the spine in the lower belly, in the pelvic bowl. And when we take ourselves as a separate self, we are basically standing on thin ice. Yeah. <laughs> and as that begins to dissolve, and we were talking a little bit about this earlier, there's a sense of a free fall. Falling through space, disorientation, vertigo, nausea. Rug pulled out from yes. under us. You know, it's like we lose our constructed ground, you know, and then who am I? 
right? Who am I really? And there's, so there's deep body identification and identification of the doer, right? Of the willful one. This begins to deconstruct. It begins to fall away when there is a deep understanding. And this is the beauty, not through effort, but actually through a deep inquiry into what is really true. You know, what is my ground, metaphorically, but also phenomenologically, my experience of it. And in the same way that there are layers to the heart, there's layers to the ground. And there's an egoic layer, like I'm a separate self, and this is my biography, and this is who I am, and don't take that from me, right? There's an archetypal level, you know, the Jungians talk about, and a lot of shamanic work focuses on our interconnectedness with nature and these profound currents of life. And then something deeper still, like the back of the heart, there is a groundless ground that opens initially, apparently below, as a localized field, and then global. So this is the interesting thing. The heart opens back, and we're into infinite space, but it, initially it localizes behind, mm -hmm. and then it's felt globally. And then it's all around. Then it's all around. Mm -hmm. It's global. And so too with the ground. It's like the ground falls away. So this is a different portal. And uh, for you, just experientially, does that open back first or down? Down. Yeah. Yeah. Down and then... It's almost like the roots of the trees start reaching up and the branches start reaching down and mm -hmm. then they start touching, Yeah, you know? And it's like the ground and the sky are like emptiness and form, really. There's a visceral sense of the undivided nature of emptiness and form yeah. that comes with this opening of the ground and a sense of profound stability, like a, an unshakability, no matter what's happening in our ordinary phenomenal human life. And I've noticed that. There's just like more and more steadiness no matter what. And that supports the heart opening. It's like when we feel a deep sense of ground, mm. a deep sense of stability. It's almost like a dark matrix, if you mm -hmm. will, mm -hmm. from which... I like that phrase. Yeah, from which light emerges. There's this very quiet, deep ground. And this provides a foundation to sustain an openness of the heart. It's like we feel free to radiate this love and this sensitivity. So the two portals are intimately related and supportive. Yeah, that sense of the stability that working with the ground in the way you're describing provides is really a key point, right? It's fascinating. To get there, you have to, as you mentioned, go through a kind of free fall yes. as your previous shaky sense of orientation and grounding in the mind or in the ego or in the body gets torn away there's that moment or maybe many long moments many of, moments usually yeah, yeah of real upsetting disorientation yeah and the disorientation is a necessary precedent to reorientation yes it's like our whole identification has been with this body mind complex right in a very visceral unconscious deep way and this begins to release and dissolve not all at once, you know, but as a gradual process, that's been true for me, at yeah. least. Here's another interesting point that I'm sure you can relate to with our shared tantric understanding, is as the ground opens, the life current intensifies. Dramatically. Dramatically. Yeah. And we feel this upwelling and illumination of the central channel. And so this sense of vibrancy, you know, of the body and then transposed to our sense of the world is heightened. This is the imminent aspect. We really have a felt sense of the divinity, if you will, or luminosity or radiance of form. Mm. And it's felt deeply in the body, like the true nature of the body is revealed. 
as um, an expression of emptiness, a vibrant, luminous expression of emptiness. In Kashmiri Shaivism, we talk about spanda, you know, oscillation or pulsation mm. of the absolute in form as the relative. And it's felt, it's known in a very vibrant way. And so life comes alive. A whole nother sense of aliveness emerges and a sense of a living mystery. Beautiful. Now, do you find that there is a sequence here where opening the heart first and then opening the ground second? And what about the third portal? Or is everybody completely coming at this from different angles? Both. That's an interesting response. So please unpack that a little bit. I will. There are no rules in this opening, I yeah. found. And it's really important to be open-minded. And the mind loves, you know, steps and hierarchies. and Systems and maps. Oh, my God. We love them, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> like, let's hold them lightly. Yes. Let's hold them as possibilities. Like, okay, this particular trail you know, across the High Sierra is a common route. But there are a lot of other routes. There's a High Sierra route. There's, you know, off-the-trail routes. I've been on those cross-country mm. routes. There's a <laughs> lot of, you know, cross-country routing that happens and a lot of fluidity in this unfolding process. And I notice sitting with people, like shifts going on, we're a whole system, yeah. right? We can differentiate mental from emotional, from instinctual, and fine levels, you know, koshas and so on. But they're constantly, vibrantly interrelating, and a shift in one area will lead to a shift in another. That's why I say both, because it can happen any particular way. It can start from the ground up, it can start from the top down, or from the mid-opening. In my case, it's been more top-down. Yeah. It's like mental clarity, emotional opening, and into the sense of undivided. And now, this like groundless ground and life current becoming increasingly more vibrant. So, for me, you know, it's been more top-down, you know, mind, heart, hara. It seems to be fairly commonly that way overall. Especially in Western culture. Particularly given, you know, our intellectual development and tendency to fixate in the prefrontal cortex. Good point. Because with indigenous people, there's not that accenting, that need for the analytic mind. We're more in our senses, aren't we? We're more grounded. And so those openings, I think, are more readily accessible, depending on the culture. Yeah. Good. So how are you introducing people into working with the groundless ground? Lots of people, me sometimes included, like to just kind of plop them in there and, you know, like sink or swim, like check out what freefall feels like, and then we'll work with it. Or I sense that you might be a little gentler about that. I probably am. <laughs> but it does happen, you know, this freefall phenomena. So I just came off a retreat, and the final morning, I realized I wanted to talk about this more. The retreat was about the heart, and we had a little time left. And, and I could just feel internally, it's like, this needs to be articulated more. So I began by just a little bit of mapping, like our sense of ground is multidimensional in the same way as it is in the heart. So we have an egoic level, we have an archetypal level, we have a non-dual level, and they feel like this. And I'm going to walk through them with you. Like the egoic level, it kind of feels this way, it looks this way, and it starts to dissolve. And then there's so a little bit of mapping and guiding with that, but with a guided meditation of free fall. It's like, let it all go. Mm. Just find out what's true for you. And notice where you get frightened. You know, notice where you fixate and be curious about that. Don't judge it, right? You know, because you can't force the letting go. Right. The letting go comes from insight from clear, deep 
felt sense understanding. When something is seen through, there is a release that goes on. So be aware of your resistance and be curious, non-judgmental. Lean into it. And this is one of the interesting things of my work is I find that these areas of fixation are wonderful areas to really hone into, both questioning and if there's a core belief, but also to sense all the way into and through. And they open up. You know, these frozen places become fluid and open. So it's a fascinating way of working with people. And how would you recommend somebody lean in or investigate one of these frozen areas? I would say, like, first notice how it localizes a sensation in your body. So my fixation feels like tightness in my chest or whatever. Right. It might be chest, or let's say there's a shaking. Since we're talking about the ground, it may be in the belly. Sure. Right. Or we may feel a shakiness in our legs. So the invitation to allow the shakiness completely. Mm. Don't try to change it. Completely accept your experience as it is and be interested in getting to know it better. That is to be intimate with it. And what does that mean? Well, if it begins to localize, let's say, as a knot in the heart or in the belly, begin to breathe into it. Each breath takes you more and more into the center or core of what this is, right? Just breathe into it. Each breath takes you more deeply. Just be curious, what's in the very center of this? Don't analyze it or think about it, but just be open to discovering, what is this? What's in the very core? So a kind of sensing, yeah, an open sensing, and also, is there a belief that goes with this contraction? Let it come to you, don't think about it. Oh, uh, if I let go, I'll die. I'm afraid I'll lose control. If I let go, I'll go insane. I'll go nuts. And the fear of annihilation takes different forms. Yeah. One is, I will fragment. I will go mad, right? The center will not hold. Another is that I will be abandoned in a void. And another common one is I'll be swallowed. Well, guess where those come from, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it comes from our early parental conditioning. You bet. The ego, the conditioned mind, superimposes on the unknown, these very early templates of what feels potentially annihilating. And so we begin to inquire into that in a very innocent and open way from present awareness. Like, okay, I'm going to go mad. I'm going to lose control. I'm going to be annihilated. I'm going to be swallowed. I'm going to be abandoned. Yes, What's you are. And some level, it's true, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's all true. And on some level, none of that is true in the right. way that we think. Right, exactly. It's not what we think. I'm going over the cliff and I'm going to die. What's my deepest knowing? What if I get quiet and sit with my deepest knowing and not think about it? Like we're evoking heart wisdom. Then what happens? So it's a process of sensing and of heartfelt meditative inquiry. And it sounds like the kind of inquiry, heartfelt meditative inquiry of these blockages, it sounds like the kind of thing that's going to really bring up some serious material if that material is present, like trauma. Such as and, trauma. Yeah. It will. If there's trauma there, this will flush it out. And nervous systems will get hyper-aroused and dysregulated. And if you're a spiritual teacher and you don't know what you're doing time to refer yes you know and help your client you know find someone who does know what they're doing in terms of resourcing and 
you know, pendulating and titrating and working, kind of taking it in small pieces so that that which was chaotic and overwhelming early on can be integrated and digested. Now, you're using terms like pendulation and titration, which are from somatic experiencing. That's right. Is that the main modality you would recommend? Like, let's say a listener is running into this traumatic material. What would be your first, in your case, you'd probably just work with it directly, but if you were mm-hmm. referring, what modality would you refer them to? Not necessarily SE, because mm-hmm. there are a number of modalities that are effective. If it's single incident trauma, EMDR is the best. Yeah, and uh, very easy to uh, find. Oh yeah, it's uh, all over the place. A lot of therapists, myself included, I trained in it almost 30 years ago. It's excellent for single incident trauma. So we're talking about a car accident, a death, a medical you know, hospitalization, you know, that kind of thing. There's nothing better that I found if you find a a skilled practitioner with it. If you're dealing with developmental trauma, that is to say trauma that is chronic and early, and some of it happens before cognition really comes online, and it's relational. It's all pre-verbal. Pre-verbal. EMDR is less helpful, Mm. I found. And now we're going into more somatic approaches, and there are a range of somatic approaches, one of which is SE, but there's others as well. Do you want to name them? No, not at this point, because I'm not that familiar with them. You know, I know from my own client work and colleague work that there are other, you know, efficacious approaches. And so, you know, recently there's a lot of criticism of various meditation techniques for plunging people into trauma and then kind of leaving them there. And so... You feel like, you know, some skilled referral or skilled use of trauma therapy is adequate to the task in most cases? I think so, yeah. I mean, it is true, like on these long meditation retreats, there are occasional casualties, you know, people who really go off track and they are not sufficiently resourced to be helped. It's fairly rare, but it does happen. It does happen, yeah. Uh, And it happens in all sorts of different kind of meditation retreats. So it's not about the particular approach so much. It could be if it's emphasizing kind of energy level, accenting that. But I think it's important to have that kind of referral network and back up and maybe to do a little bit of screening too with people Mm -hmm. if they know they have a traumatic background, you know, to consider what they're getting into as well. And, you know, it's an interesting question about spiritual teachers and how much they should know and train. I mean, the more they learn, the better in order to recognize the patterns and symptoms and to be able to talk about it in a realistic way with their students to say, this may come up for you, you know, and it doesn't mean that something's wrong with you fundamentally. You're not flawed or lacking in a fundamental way. However, conditioning is intense and it needs a very specific kind of attention when it does. You need to be careful around this. Be careful. Yeah. And, and I think this is something that teachers are learning more. And this also goes with attachment styles. Like to learn, there's very solid research that's emerged in the last 20 and 30 years about very basic core forms of bonding mm-hmm. that happen between caretakers and their children. And what happens when a parent is not there in a consistent loving, attuned way, what the impact of that is relationally, and how repair happens also relationally. And so teachers will have students who are just like really caught in these old patterns of wanting something from their teacher that they really need from their mom or their dad, and that a therapist is better able to offer. But I think helpful for a teacher to be able to recognize those patterns and to be able to explain them 
to their students and give them a source to help resolve them. Yeah. Coming back to the theme of the ground. Yeah. Maybe two things. Mm-hmm. One is the issue of control. And we are so wired to try to be in control, often with our minds. Yeah. And we talk somewhat about the fear of losing control. It's such a profound issue to realize how limited our control truly is. And what we're letting go is mostly the illusion of control. And so it's opening to a fundamental trust in life that things move as they need to. And all is well, no matter what. And it doesn't mean that everything's going to go well in some kind of conventional sense either. Sure. Right. So this issue of trust is so fundamental and so difficult, actually, for the conditioned body-mind to come to, and yet so important in terms of truly living from a sense of an ease of being in a spontaneous and creative way. Something that Nisargadat Maharaj communicated very beautifully and effectively is that it can't go any other way. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of a almost block like inevitability to what's arising and your relationship with it is from the absolute space one of just pure acceptance. Pure acceptance. It's true. And part of what's arising is our creative response. Yes. As well. So we're not passive, right? But fundamentally in place of acceptance. And we start there. It's like a complete or as complete as possible. Mm. And of course, the conditioned mind doesn't completely accept. So something else, you know, we call it the absolute or unconditioned, does accept what is. And we open to that, just allowing of whatever the experience happens to be, right? And then in that openness, something may or may not move in this particular body-mind to meet it as a creative response. And to be open to that, too. Mm-hmm. And that feels like we're getting out of the cycle of reactivity. We're truly entering into a creative life. We're actually moving with the life current that we talked about earlier. That was point one. What is point two? Point two is body identification. Mm-hmm. Right? I am the body. Yes. I am the body. This thought, this feeling goes so deeply. Consciousness identifies with this particular form. And just respecting that, I think. Hmm. I think early on when I was exposed to the you are not the body teaching very early on, I could kind of get it intellectually. But it's been years of unpacking how deep, how visceral the identification with this form is. And, you know, the first issue is like moving from willfulness to willingness. And the other is this a deep, deep seeing that who we are is not confined to form. It's not that we're not the body. Yeah. We're not just this body. Right. And to get that on a visceral level is just so profound. And it feels like a real, an emergent edge in mm-hmm. my experience mm-hmm. to honor not the thought or the concept of their philosophy, but the actual experience of how well is this known here and to keep exploring you know, that edge of subtle identification with the body. Yeah, so on that point, it seems like when, you know, I open up to the ground that you're describing and working with that material, it very quickly, maybe instantly and totally, has this large relationship to death 
thing yes. coming up right away. Yes. Right? So not only, you know, people go through fear, annihilation, all that stuff, but even beyond all that, there's kind of this yawning maw of death that is actually quite present there in a beautiful way. Mm, the abyss. The yeah. dark abyss. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you did say a dark matrix. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's starting to, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious. For me, that would be a big theme at that point. But I'm curious what you would say to that. It's a kind of direct recognition of this fathomless abyss. Yeah. And darkness where really the mind cannot go, a trusting and, and falling into that. Right. I think from a certain perspective, obviously, that's so terrifying. But from this place, it's quite the opposite. It's utterly freeing. Yeah, freeing and also somehow comforting, but not in that like, you know, annihilative. No, no. It, here we touch in really to pure potentiality. Mm -hmm. Here we open to life. Yeah. And so to differentiate death from life no longer becomes meaningful. Right. We're facing and opening to the unknown in a very spontaneous and authentic way. And death opens up and life opens up and we find ourselves increasingly living as a mystery. Most of the people I talk with in these conversations don't speak much about energy or energetics mm -hmm. in the meditative sense. Not the scientific sense, mm -hmm. but the, you know, mm -hmm. prana, kundalini, shakti, shakti, energetic type sense. Mm -hmm. You can work with this material with that or without it. I feel like, you know, one way or another, you're going to talk about it. You're just going to model it very differently, mm -hmm. maybe scientifically sounding or not. But because you're really open to talking about that, I'm just curious how you feel that energetic quality relates to this opening of the ground. Mm. That's a good question. Now, I used the phrase pure potentiality a moment ago, and that's what comes again. It's like there's, it's not exactly a dark hole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is where words and images sure. are, you know, so limited, but... The womb of the void. As yes, you know, there's just sense of this pure potentiality that manifests as form and that there's a very subtle vibratory quality to that it's like this is the border between formless and form where from that darkness emerges the first vibration mm -hmm. if you will of light and of consciousness and it's a very refined powerful level energetically and it does have for me an upwelling quality that's you know it can be descending interestingly there can be a sense of inspired as if from above but when we speak of this ground it's just as if creation emerging that pulse it's uh, vibrantly frothing upward this right? is it there's a yeah. like a effervescent quality that's emerging from no thing and it has a tremendous potency when i've heard people talk about you know okay there's form and emptiness but as the emptiness turns into the form or the form turns into the emptiness, even though in a way that language is meaningless, but it's the interaction between them where this energetic or this vibratory quality is found, right? Yes. You can sort of feel 
the potentiality of the void like bursting into form. Exactly. Right? That's yeah. exactly it. There's a, there's a push there or a... A, a pulse, a, yeah. uh, an upwelling. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Would you say that that is also what's referred to with Spanda? Yes. Yeah. I yeah. believe that's what's being pointed to. And so, in particularly in most Advaita or non-dual stuff in America, and I think in Europe too, people just don't talk about this very much. No. Right? It's a little bit verboten, right? We're just, it is. Yeah. So. We're, we're into the gray. <laughs> yeah. The gray zone. Is this okay to talk about? Is it a distraction? Yeah. Right? Is it non-essential and seductive, potentially? Right. And the answer is yes, it can be. One can get very fascinated, you know, with these compelling energetic levels and experiences, and one can easily identify and take on an identity as a special yes. knower right. about this. However, this is a genuine phenomenological experience that's shared when people who are sensitive go deeply into their firsthand experience. Right. So at least in terms of it sure feels that way. It does, in fact, sure feel that way. It does, yeah. indeed. And we can talk about it in a way that's recognizable to each other mm. because of our own deep experiential practice. Yeah, It's alive, right? Whether spoken or not. And that's the interesting thing is it's in the field, too. So we can sit in a group with people who are oriented this way, and there's just like a deepening richness of that vibratory quality and people light up That's this is right. the interesting thing people light up and if your sensing is clearer you can see it i mean visually right. light around the body you sense it as an interior luminosity mm. as well and what's interesting is i've noticed and i wrote about this in my prior book in touch is when people get in touch with the truth their deepest truth they start lighting up and opening up in this way and we see it in their eyes the sparkle but it's through the whole body-mind. Yeah, I'm just reminded of Punjaji talking about that particular quality when people wake up seeing the, you know, energetic change and shift. And oh, what did he say? It, just basically that, exactly mm. what you were just saying. Mm. And so having read a bunch of his stuff, I was like, oh, uh -huh. yeah. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. Right. Anything else you dying to say today? Interesting choice of words. <laughs> no, I like where we went, you know, because it just feels very vibrant and alive, an area of keen exploration. Yeah. So I appreciate where this conversation has gone. It's lovely to be with you, Michael. Yeah, you too, John. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Yeah, yeah my pleasure. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. 
So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>